Hey, y'all. Happy Pride Month. We are so excited to share this interview with you with our special guest. We know that so much has happened these past couple of months, even within the last week, but we wanted to make sure that our last episode of June would commemorate, honor, and celebrate Pride Month. So our special guest for this week is Hoisam Wuen, and she is a first-generation androgynous queer Vietnamese American from Southern California. On a professional level, she's been everything from a personal stylist, fashion designer, lecturer, medical startup engineer, and most recently, social epidemiologist focusing on mental health, intergenerational trauma, and firearm violence. When Hoysom isn't doing all of that, she enjoys boxing, MMA, and Muay Thai. As much as she enjoys cooking for others, you'll get to hear Hoysom's personality and passion and just honesty come out in this interview. And where she really asks us, well, how are we going to be advocates for humanity and what that looks like? Welcome to the Project Black Podcast, co-hosted by Dara, Fatima, Ryan, and Bree, four Black public health professionals, friends, and colleagues. Tune in as we come together to discuss how we can bridge love, access, community care, and knowledge. We are Project Black. All right. We are so excited to have this special guest. We've been trying to make this happen, and here we are sitting down, not together, because we're still observing physical distancing. Um, and Hoysom, welcome, welcome. So usually when we start off in tradition, we've only done like four episodes, but it feels right to say tradition because we've been carrying it on for the other episodes. And what we like to do is start off with a check-in question. And our check-in question for today, since our episode, the name is What's Love Got to Do With It, is when do you most feel loved? And like some people sometimes might break this down into love languages, for example. But if you were to answer that question, what would you say? Ooh, I just had the scenario yesterday, actually, when I had like a little moment where I felt like triggered and I kind of react when I feel triggered. So I kind of get snappy. And um, the person I'm currently seeing right now, she, you know, people typically respond with anger or frustration or, you know, impatience, but she responded with, where did that come from? And we got into this whole conversation of like, my past, my traumas, and, you know, why I still have some, you know, things that I still need to work through. And I think that is one of the best things that make me, you know, feel loved and um, feel sustained, because it's not like that. It's not like a, you know, oh, yeah, if you buy me ice cream, it's going to make me feel loved. It's really like, a, I pay attention to what you do. And I pay attention from where it's coming from. And I want to understand that and make sure that I help you put words around those things. So, man, come on, already dropping gems. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's it, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, no, but I appreciate that, and I honor that. I think a lot of us, you know, Dara and Ryan, we've had a lot of conversations just as friends, but just thinking about what does it mean to show up for ourselves, but also the people that we hold dear to us, whether those intimate relationships, families, and friends. And it sounds like like just listening and asking someone like where did that come from and understanding what they're bringing to the table is important to you so we'll definitely get to dive more into what that looks like as it relates to lgbtqi rights and, and etc so thanks for sharing that with me. thank you for asking me of course anybody else want to share what their love languages or when they most feel loved i think the last time i took the test um what is the five love, love language test I think it was quality time, and it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Like, that's my love language for everybody, family, friends, intimate partners, all of it. Ryan can testify. Tara could probably testify as well. Like, if I go visit them, I'm there. I end up falling asleep on the couch. I wake up Hours. the next morning. <laughs> and I think my second one is, like, acts of service, and then everything else is third, fourth, and fifth. You mean you get to hang out with Ryan on her couch and everything. I tried to move in one time, and she was straight up like, no. Well, funny story, and we'll talk about that later, but we were almost going to be roommates, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Hoysom has been trying to sell me this dream of us living in New York together, and I keep on telling her, absolutely not. But now I can come visit you in California, so. Come, anytime. Anytime. I, I can put you up. Thank you. Um, for me, my love language is definitely 
quality time, but in romantic relationships, quality time means nothing without physical touch. So sorry if we just spent seven hours together and you touched me at hour six. We've only spent an hour together. Like, you have so much more to go now. Um, wow. <laughs> but um, other than that, definitely, I think as I'm getting older and, you know, going through my own relationships and different kinds of relationships, you know, both romantic and platonic, um, I think I feel the most loved when, like, people respect my boundaries. Um, I've learned that's something for me that's really important because um, it means that you respect me. Um, and I've been navigating, like, you know, those feelings and, and when and how that comes up and how it shows up for sure because, you know, how you react to that is is a different situation. <laughs> I think I would have to echo both of you about quality time too. I feel like that's when I um, get to know people the most and I feel like that's when they get to know me the most. And also uh, in both romantic and like just platonic friendships. And also I think I most feel love when people ask me, like, what do you need right now? Like, do you need mm. a sounding board or do you mm -hmm. just need someone, like, or do you just need me to listen? And I think that, like, makes me feel really good because then I can be like, yes, I do want advice or no, I just need you to listen right now. So, so yeah, that's when I most feel love. Yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll jump right into this. Um, so like I said, like, this is, uh, this conversation is about love. It's um, June is Pride Month, if you do or you don't know. Um, kind of a, a little history tidbit. Um, a lot of people don't know that Pride wasn't always a parade, and that's kind of the connotation that it has. But it actually started with the Stonewall Riots of 1969, um, actually on this day, June 28th. Um, and on this day, patrons and supporters of the Stonewall Inn in New York, which was a popular gay club, um, they staged an uprising to resist the police harassment and persecution, which they were um, often subjected to. Um, and from how I've come to understand it is that during that time, like, a lot of gay establishers and gay clubs were really being targeted. And this night, they were just like, you know, we're, we're over it. Um, <laughs> And so um, that's kind of, there There have been riots before, but often in history, this is kind of touted as like the first um, big one. And uh, it kind of sparked the movement to outlaw discriminatory laws and practices against LGBT, uh, LGBTQ community. Um, and it's something that we're still continuing to fight for today, um, like a lot of issues that We've been fighting for 50 plus years. Um, <laughs> so as I was reflecting on this topic um, and also trying to educate myself, uh, two things came to mind, um, culture and the law. And oftentimes we see um, like how culture, the culture of a society influences or sways the law. And other times when that culture isn't there to back us up, we rely on the law that has already been um, set and in place. Uh, so I was hoping that today we could have a conversation on both. Um, so the first question that I had that I wanted to start with was that usually, you know, our families are the ones who set the first expectations of gender norms and expectations. And oftentimes, um, at least in the U.S., they tend to be heteronormative. Um, so I was wondering, like, what are what were the gendered expectations placed upon you, and have how have you navigated that through your own journey? Well, I was you know raised in a pretty traditional Asian household. I'm Vietnamese American, um, but I'm also Chinese American. My mother was um, half Chinese, half Vietnamese. Um, so our household was pretty strict, pretty very just again culturally Asian. And the other the only time that I can really distinctly um, acknowledge that I wasn't just Asian was when I stepped out of the house and I went to school and all of a sudden I was American. Um, so a lot of my, um, you know, like the expectations I had around like my gender and things like that when I was young was when I was a girl, you know, not when I was a girl because I'm still a girl, but when I was young, sorry, when I was young, um, my parents would always try to make me wear lots of dresses. They would have me, you know, um, participate in certain, you know, like 
cultural etiquette that um, only women would do or, um, you know, that they would expect women to do more of. Um, they would have me sit at the table in a specific way. They would have me speak in a certain type of way. If I was too vocal, I was, um, you know, interpreted as being too masculine and not, you know, um, dutiful, a dutiful daughter enough. And, um, and so it was a lot of that. And anytime I was like, you know, wearing jeans or overalls, it was always just like, well, make sure the jeans are tight or make sure the jeans are really high-waisted. And it was never just a, these are just freaking jeans. Can we just wear pants? Um, but, you know, it was, it was always every, uh, there was always a lot of little things. And it wasn't necessarily just like clothes. It was in my demeanor and my posture and the way that I did talk or didn't talk. Um, and, it, and it had to do with a lot of cultural things. Um, it wasn't just like, if you were a girl, we wanted you to be gentle and soft. It was, how were you going to be perceived? And how was that going to look on me as your parent? Like, you know, other Asian families might see me as not raising you properly or letting you be too out here being wild. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's what I can remember. Mm. Yeah, um, this conversation, and I know we've had a conversation, um, you and I separately, about a lot of things. Um, also, side note, if you don't know, Hoysome is like a fashion superstar. Oh, no. Was definitely the best dressed at the School of Public Health. Um, but I love how... And you you said a little about this to me um, on social media, but um, <laughs> to me in person, but also on social media, just like kind of your journey and how you express yourself now. And I think it was a recent post that you were wearing like tra your cultural traditional clothing um, in like two different styles. And I thought that was so beautiful. Um, and it was amazing. And I was just like, wow, she really does pull off everything and anything. <laughs> um yeah, it's exciting to be able to wear both and to look good in both and to feel good in both, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I'd ask that question because I know uh, for me specifically, like, you know, not every culture has that heteronormative, you know, expectation. Um, and I often say, like, I was raised with my mother's religion and my father's culture, and it's a matriarchal society. So me growing up with my gender norms and expectations – um, it wasn't that my parents were, like, super progressive or anything or, like, we're going to raise, like, a gender-neutral child because I was definitely raised, like, with Western femininity and all of those other things. Um, but the expectation was, like, sure, like, we learned how to cook and clean and be domesticated and whatever those traditional norms mean, but also doing, like, the quote-unquote boy chores and, like, helping my dad with the lawn and taking out the trash and, you know, and conversely, like I also saw my dad folding clothes. I remember my dad doing my hair and he was the one watching Disney movies with us. So I didn't realize how odd that was or how different that was until I started looking at like my other, my yeah. friend's family structures and being like, Oh, their dad doesn't do this or their mom doesn't do that. Or they do do that. Um, and so I kind of wonder, um, I think America is at a point where a lot of people are calling for a shift in heteronormative as being the norm. Um, so, like, what is the, what, like, what is the new normal, and do we need one? You know, like, how, like where do we go from here where we're raising children to, it's, they're just genes, you know, like, <laughs> it's just a chore. Like, these are skills that you just need to be a, a functioning person in, you know, society. Um, right. So I was interested in all of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, that's um, the meaning of having a standard or having a norm means that there is a point of reference, right? But why would we need a point of reference as if implying that that is the standard, that that's, you know, where things should deviate from, and if anything deviates too far and becomes an outlier, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think when it comes to, like, especially when it comes to, like, gender identity, LGBTQ stuff, um, just even teaching our, you know, our, our younger generations what it means to have self-agency, um, that doesn't have to be gendered. What is, mm -hmm. why, why is having a sense of an acknowledgement over one's 
self-agency, a gendered thing? Why do men get to have that more than women get to have that, right? Why do men have like the um, opportunity to be more independent at a younger age than women are? And it has a lot to do with like what's safe and what's acceptable and all these other things. But why are we making, why are we limiting our young, you know, young adults and, you know, younger generations to, you know, a, a confined aisle because we're afraid of things outside of that aisle that are unsafe, why aren't we questioning the things that are not safe? Um, so, you know, like for women, for instance, like don't go to out too late at night because people could harm you. And it's like, well, why are you telling the girl to be safe when you should be telling your boys to not be harming people? <laughs> so, I mean, that's a whole nother, uh, another type of discussion too. But I think in general, I don't, I try to not, you know, teeter around heteronormativity at all. And it has nothing to do with, oh, I just don't like heteronormativity. I just find it really inefficient. And I'm a very, like, efficient person. And I'm very independent. And if I know that there's something that I am working from a point of reference, the moment that that no longer serves me, there needs to be a new point of reference. So, you know, if we can develop tools to... Um, recognize what we have agency over and recognize what we don't. We can start to actually question the tools that we do need for the things we don't have agency over. So a lot of the times we feel like women, for instance, feel like they don't have agency over the way that their bodies are perceived, right? So if we have tools to actually discuss, you know, why we feel like we don't, you know, we're not comfortable in our skin, why we feel like we have to make commentary on our way, why we have to make commentary on our skin or anything like that, when we can change that type of discussion, the, the type of anthology that we have that we readily use for um, discussions around body and around our own, the way we perceive ourselves, then things can start to actually shift in terms of how we actually think about ourselves um, and how we build a relationship to ourselves. Um, so, you know, that all depends on an individual to be fluid. Um, and I don't just mean fluid, like in gender identity, be fluid in your gender identity, but be flexible, be adaptable, be, you know, be open and willing, but don't be predetermined. Mm. Um, yeah. You dropped a lot of things that I feel like I need to digest in one moment. Oh, <laughs> you said something um, about, you know, some of the norms and the expectations that you were raised with your parents was because it was going to be a reflection on them. Um, so I'm kind of interested also to hear from Fatima and Dara on like, you know, if you've thought about, if you have the desire to have children or you want children, you know, what do you think the balance is going to be of, you, our parents are kind of, we always kind of have to answer to them. They're always going to make those comments. You know what I mean? So how do we, how do you envision, like, you know, starting a family and, you know, believing what you believe in raising your children, how you want to raise them, but also, like, with this sense of agency, knowing that you're going to, you could very well get a lot of pushback from your family and the expectations and the culture that, that comes within your, your family unit? Mm. I think for me, growing up, there were definitely a lot of gendered expectations because of, like, culture and religion tied together. Mm. Um, like the man is the, you know, from the Bible, like the head of the household, or, or as people interpret it, to be the head of the household. And women are supposed to be like submissive. And then also growing up, like my dad didn't believe that, you know, women should wear pants and all that. So growing, so I think I had to do like a lot of my own deconstruction of what it means to like be a woman and like, figure out like, okay, well, this is what my parents think. Like, what is my own opinion? And I feel like a lot of the times, like the policing that I got around like gender and gender expression was because my parents were trying to like protect me from other people's opinions or protect me from the world. Mm -hmm. But I think from my kids, I want to like, I don't think we should put that pressure on kids to try to conform to the world around them. Like, I think for my kids, I want to like, encourage them and give them agency to be like the baddest version of themselves they can be and then and like we should put more pressure on like society the world to like to change not the kids like I want my kids to be able to confidently you know be you know whoever they are identify whoever they you know want to be and 
like, and I don't know, we can't really change. So I don't know what society is going to look like in 10, 15 years, but at least I think if we keep starting with, you know, the generations that come out of us or around us to like empower them to just, you know, be who they can be as powerful as they can be, then I think that's a start. No, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think similarly to what everyone has said, I know, Hoysen, when you started, you mentioned growing up in an Asian household, specifically Chinese and Vietnamese, and to Dara's point and Brian, your point around, like, religion and culture, they always sometimes coincide and sometimes they conflict and other times they support each other and we don't know if it's the culture or the religion that's speaking. Uh, but I grew up and still, I mean, I always consider myself always growing up because I'm always growing, but continuously growing up with a family who's Muslim. And I think there are certain attributes that come with the culture. And when you think about religion as someone who's a religious studies major, always understanding the context of things and like, why, for example, when Hoyson was saying, well, why aren't you focusing on the guys or the boys or the men or however they identify to stop doing this behavior versus telling us to cover our heads and our bodies, wear looser clothes and, lo and lower our gaze, right? And really understanding, well, what does that mean? And why it, do you bring in these rules and regulations because you feel like people can't change? Well, then the next question is, well, why do you feel like people can't change? Well, men are weak, obviously, and women are not. And men... I have a higher sexual drive and women do not, right? And there's these ideas of what it means based on our gender or how we perceive gender and, the, you know, what we're born with. And it's, it's very problematic because I think growing up, I was just, I grew up really quickly, whatever that, like I, by sixth grade, I was wearing like, a, 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 I don't remember what size bra I was wearing, but I was wearing a size bra that I knew that everybody in the classroom would look at me and the boys would like look at me and I didn't know what to do with this body that was forming and then I was ashamed of it. And so I was like, okay, I need to look or wear certain clothes so I won't be seen as fast because even when you don't understand or have language for certain things, you know that if something happens, it's your fault right and it was just very hard to be like okay we believe in a higher power or creator that's of love but somehow it's our fault well what is this curse that we have well you know and it's a very hard place to be in but I think over the years and thinking about future generations and possibly having a family I've grown to unlearn a lot of those things and my family has grown to accept the things that they don't care for, like sometimes the way I dress and how I choose to shave my hair. And they're just like, who is this child, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it has nothing to do with necessarily like my sexual orientation, but more so how I identify myself. And sometimes people conflict the two where it's like, if you look or dress a certain way, then you must be attracted to fill in the blank. So I think my family has come a very long way. And I think my understanding of religion, being able to pull things out and being able to say, well, that that's not true. Or like you talking about this story, but what about that story, right? To have conversations with people and meet them where, they at, where they're at in my family. Um, luckily, and I feel grateful for it, like we've moved beyond conversations that allows us to just be more open and realize that a lot of what we're thinking about is really based in fear and nothing else like the other is scary and therefore you shouldn't be like that person so that's sort of where I'm at in terms of, of journey and like if you know my brother would say things like oh if my kids wherever within the LGBTQI community like I don't know what I would do right and I'm like you say that now but if it does happen you will <laughs> and if you don't know what to do that's what the unlearning is right because even people within the LGBTQI community um, internalize some of these things yeah. Something that I was hearing kind of through everyone's responses was um, kind of the three R's of rules, regulations, and religion, and how intertwined that is. Um, and, you know, I'm, even as like a Christian identifying woman, like I am completely for the separation of church and state because I'm like, <laughs> as a Christian woman, as a human being, and as a public health professional, like, I can't support anything where people, like, people are literally living and dying by policies. And a lot of these 
rules and laws that are at least in America, um, and I know elsewhere as well, but, you know, for context for this episode, uh, <laughs> um, a lot of it is, is, you know, especially with the election year coming up, it's pushed on, like, these Christian um, beliefs and, and narratives and the Bible and all of these things, but it just blows my mind that I'm like, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but I brought that up to say the Supreme Court, you know, we know just um, passed a law that that bans uh, employment discrimination for the LGBT community, um, saying that the 1964 Civil Rights Act does protect the community um, based on sex. And half of the U.S. um, already had protection, but half of it didn't. So now the federal law is kind of covering the gaps, right, at least at a baseline, which is, um, it feels wrong to say a huge victory because it feels like it should have been a baseline, Um, but it is a step forward in the right direction, uh, and there's a lot more to be be done. Um, And so a question that I have is kind of just like, and part of it is from ignorance and part of it is from privilege because I don't have to think about these things, right? I, I think about other things as a black woman, indigenous woman, but uh, I'm not, as someone who's not part of that community, like I don't have to think about these things. So my question is, is like, where do we go from here? Like, what should we pushing for next? Like, where are the other holes in the gaps that maybe like, where we don't see, but we can support the LGBT community and being like, no, we need this, we need that. Um, Because that's just like, I know one of my like personal blind spots yeah I I feel like I mean we're all in public health we all have a background in public health um so there's so much you could say to like what we need and as we you know as you all know social progress is so much faster than policy or law right Mm -hmm. um and that was made intentionally that way whether or not it's good or bad um everybody can have their own opinions on it but the reality is is that the modern day you know family doesn't look anything like the modern day family of 15 years ago and the concerns of the modern day family don't look like any of the concerns of modern day family 50 years ago either right because now we can understand that the modern day family you know it's not just the you have that one gay cousin (laughs) now it's like everybody is a little bit everybody understands their gender identity and their sexual um, orientation in some degree you know a lot more people are um, identifying with other things Um, there's much more different classifications of religion now that we're um, you know more accepting of or at least more knowledgeable about and um, we are also having more conversations around race um, because, you know, we as a country still don't know how to navigate humanity for black and brown people, um, unfortunately. Like, what the hell is the, the holdup with that? Um, so I think that uh, a lot of the discussions I feel like now from, for the LGBT community when it comes to policies, when it comes to thinking about what are some um, different, what are some new types of discussions we can have? What are some new um, structures that we should be reinforcing in education and things like that? Isn't just gender identity, isn't just, um, you know, like, uh, you know, trans health, although these things are all very important, we need to stop identifying these things as just white people problems, right? When we think about health for trans individuals, when we think about health for non-binary individuals, when we think about like um, violence and in every sort of sense on the street and in medicinal settings, like it's not just, these are not, these are, these are done onto black and brown communities disproportionately. So in the same way that we can't talk about, you know, um, violence against women without talking about race and economics. It's the same thing here. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the LGBTQ community is exempt from having to deal with the same um, issues that, you know, everyone at large in our community is dealing with today, which is the, the you know, the problems that we have around racism um, and the problems that we have about around valuing women's lives and the problems we have around valuing um, either, you know, further mar- marginalized lives, like 
black trans women, for instance, the, you know, the intersectionality of having all those identities, right? Because when we talk about LGBTQ, a lot of the times we think about gay white men and their Fortune 500 money. We don't think about trans black women. And that's because they're trans and that's because they're black and that's because they're women. Um, so really, I don't think the issues, the policies around what should be pushing LGBT communities forward are any different really than the same policies we need to be enforcing and, and um, pushing for in the larger community, mm. in the larger national community. Yeah, I love that so much, um, and you're hitting on exactly where we wanted to move this conversation towards because we're in, we're in an interesting time, right? I mean, about three months ago, COVID hit, and we saw ourselves, you know, as black women figuring out how do we stand in solidarity for Asian communities who are facing discrimination and xenophobia, right? And likewise, what you just mentioned around intersectionality as it relates to black LGBTQI allies, specifically black trans lives, there's that piece where you've identified as a queer person and of someone of color and of Asian descent, but also there's a piece there that's also naming that there's a, a different type of experience that people who are black and also trans and also women, I, you know, experience it. For some people who don't know what the term intersectionality is, it is a concept that has existed for years, but it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. And the idea is that marginalized identities, they, once they come together, they create an experience for someone that sometimes it's hard to separate who we are, or as Audre Lorde says, we don't live single-issued lives. And so with that said, I'm, I'm interested to also hear your, your take and perspective on what it means to be an ally or a accomplice or a co-conspirator. There's just so many other words. And I know Dara has a question about which, where you lean towards more, but what does it mean um, to be in that space, so, to be a person that's queer, Asian American, and to also be in solidarity with folks who are Black, trans, or within the LGBTQI community? What does that mean for you? I have so many feelings around the word ally and allyship. I feel like there are so many ways that people can use that word to their advantage or just misconstrue how it actually should function. And I think um, that has everything to do with like, um, you know, just how in America, and I think in a lot of Western countries, Westernized countries, um, where you have more than, you know, you have more than just one race, you have a melting pot, quote unquote, of, of different races, you have a lot of, uh, you have the, you know, the majority, the higher power, you know, i.e. white people most of the time, um, pitting other um, marginalized communities against each other, right? It's not like, um, you know, you have this model, um, model myth minority, model minority myth going on with a lot of Asian people that uh, Asians can't even identify are actually working against them too. They think it's a good thing going on for them. They think, oh, you know, people think we're smart. People think we're this, da, 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 da. but then actually it's pretty divisive and it makes it so that we can even you know, collaborate with our black and brown community effectively because we're always, you know, we're always being seen in this hierarchy that's not even implemented by us. It's implemented by the larger oppressor, right? The, the, the people of higher authority and the infrastructure of things. So um, I, I, allyship to me, I tend not to use allyship as a word. I tend to just say, <laughs> I tend to just say I'm an advocate of humanity wherever that looks like, wherever that does not exist, I want that, I want it to exist in that space. And so it doesn't, it doesn't have to come with this, like, I want to be your friend, I, I love your, you know, like, obviously, we appropriate as a country, black culture in all sorts of different types of ways. But to be able to, like, take a step back and say, you know, this is not about my interest in your culture, or the fact that we can all wear Jordans, or the fact that I like to rap and you like to rap, or that fact that you love orange chicken, I love orange chicken, or the fact that we love to eat taco Tuesdays on Tuesdays. Like, this has to be with the fact that, yo, there, there are people dying. <laughs> and there are people in cages, and there are people being shot on the street, and there are people still being, you know, shuttled out of this country for um, bullshit immigration stuff, you know? And this is, you know, dehumanizing people at the basis of it. These are, you know, infractions on people's inherent right as an individual and you know of course you're going to build up the logic and the dialogue to you know make all sorts of different lingo around things like allyship and intersectionality and all these other things and they help with us to actually have conversations around these things but i think 
it also makes it difficult to, you know, connect with people who are, you know, uh, only a third of the nation really gets an education. So the, the you know, the, the remaining two thirds don't even speak that lingo. So where, where do we, where do we communicate then? We communicate on where we share a common denominator and that's the fact that we're all human. So if I can't get through to you with the fact that, okay, can we all agree that somebody getting shot by the cops, whether they're black or white is a problem? Can we all agree that's true? Can we all agree that all black people who are getting shot disproportionately by cops, that's a pattern, right? That there's a pattern going on. Can we all agree on that? And it's just, it's, you know, I've, I've been finding that when I'm having conversations with my family, even, you know, some of them are more conservative than others, or some of them are just really trying to, you know, teeter on learning more. Um, and it really is just like, a, they get into these conversations, but what if this, what if that, what if this, you know, like, but were they criminals? But were they this? Well, it's like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. What, what matters? Is it okay that a cop shoots somebody on the street? No? Okay then that seems to be the only, the only common denominator in this conversation. And I think, um, I think really that's more quote unquote allyship, I guess, really just kind of like fighting back on people. It's like, but this, but that, but what, but what? Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my thoughts. I don't know if there's a word for you know, I, We were saying that we were going to name this episode what's love got to do with it, but I feel like when you said, but what, I don't know, that hit me in a certain type of way where I'm like, <laughs> but what, like, what is your reasoning, right? Like, how you, you know, like, yes, everything that you just said, all the snaps, seriously. Yeah, the things that people come up with arguments these days, I'm always just kind of like, you're contingent on something. You, you have a contingency. And when, we, when you want an argument to be one-sided, you don't have contingencies because you know, you know something, even if you don't know something is wrong, you know something is different. You're not going to call an apple an orange unless you've never met an apple. Then that seems to be also a problem too, right? That's why we need diversification, right? If you've never met an apple, then well, hell, I guess everything's going to look like an orange. But <laughs> like, it, it's just like you, your, your arguments are contingent on something. It assumes that something else has to be true. But a lot of the times the things that we have prior assumptions about aren't true. This is, this is my virtual, my virtual <laughs> shrug. <laughs> appreciate you. Appreciate you so much for sharing that. Yeah, you just, um, I feel like untangled so many like little bar, like balls of yarn in my head that I'm like, because <laughs> sometimes I'm sitting here and I'm just like, you know, like, I don't know what to do outside of speak up. Like, I don't know, like, you know, what should I need to be behind or like public health professional, like, what policies like are am I am I not seeing that are like falling through the cracks for me? But it's just so simple as like finding that common denominator, you know, and to stop. I know at least for me, what I'm taking away from this conversation is to stop thinking of it as like this other issue and just being like, no, the common denominator. Like, what is? And I love that that what you said about you know I'm an advocate for humanity and I want that to exist in all the spaces that it doesn't, and that just like uncomplicated so many questions in my head for me. Because <laughs> um, it's also hard, and I can only speak for myself, to try to advocate for something that, like, I don't fully understand all the time, you know, and I don't know, like, all of the lingo and, you know, the processes and the experiences and all this stuff, but like you said, like, I don't, sometimes you can't name it, but I'm like, but it's off, and I'm speaking up because it's off, <laughs> and, you know, that's my starting point, you know? Yeah, so like, I mean, we, I think because we're all educated individuals here, we've all done our masters in public health and all these other things, we tend to forget that a lot of these discussions didn't start in a classroom at Boston University with other, with, with like, you know, 80% other white women. <laughs> it started on the streets, on the porches, in the backyard grills, you know, on, on, the, on the summer family camps or whatever it is that people do. People of color don't go on camping trips. What the hell is that? I don't, I don't black, even know. Black we, people, black people camp. As I say, I like the nature. I like I nature. I love nature too. I just can't remember the last time I went camping. Yeah, we <laughs> might not have another tent. No, right, right. right. The language, the language is different. Right, you guys, you guys have more like cookouts. You guys are in nature, right? You guys are, but you guys are in, you're in nature. <laughs> I don't know, 
Uh, not necessarily bring in a sleeping bag, but you're going to bring a tent and a lot of chairs. Yeah, I'm going to be there, gonna be there all day. Um, but camping, camping, like, yeah, I don't remember the last time we did that. <laughs> that makes me think of, like, my mom, you know, when she talks about her country and when she finally moved there, she was like, I just was so confused when they started labeling things as organic. Like, we don't have those labels there because everything's organic. We implicitly, that's what we think. And similarly, like, like, do we have to call it a different thing, or is it just we're going outside? <laughs> right, right. This is, this is, you know, full politics. Americans love to make politics over everything, really. Everything. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh. Okay, well, thank you for sharing your thoughts. So I'm going to transition into the wellness segment. So because of stigma and di- discrimination, LGBTQ youth are more likely to struggle with their mental health. So what are, would you all say are some ways that we can promote mental health, especially among young people? Am I going to start? Is there somebody, somebody else? Gonna, okay. Uh, <laughs> want to start? Um, well, I feel like I talk about this a lot with my younger cousins, um, with, with, you know, my 1.5 generation cousins. Um, there, none of them are LGBTQ, as far as I know. They might not. They might have, you know, never really came to terms with it or haven't discussed it with anyone yet. But I think, in general, um, if we know that LGBTQ, like just statistically, like this is just a statistical fact, that um, those young adults and even just younger children who are in the LGBT community are forced to have to kind of think about a lot of things they really don't need to even be thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. So especially when it comes to like how they're perceived in their gender, what they should be wearing, you know, what do people care about, whether or not they're going to be safe, you know, if they, if a, you know, a young boy decides he wants to step out in the dress, like, is he going to be safe? Like, these are not questions that those kids should be concerned about. I feel like parents should be discussing about these things and actively, um, not like patrolling, but like um, trying to navigate what some barriers and boundaries can look like, right? And how do we in- how do we instill those in our kids, but also how do we build dialogue in our communities for those things? I think in general, with, with LGBT, with you know, with race, with immigration, with anything, you have to be willing to advocate for your kid. You have to be mm-hmm. willing to defend your kid. You know, um, you can't be complacent in something that your kid is and even if your kid changes later down the line right or you know develops a more of an understanding of who they are you as a parent have a responsibility to actively defend your child to have the space to figure these things out so I think um, young young LGBTQ individuals can also you know learn from older LGBT individuals especially this millennial generation where we have words for everything right yeah. to come like talk to us and actually say listen I want to have a really in-depth conversation with my parents about what makes me feel safe or mm-hmm. what makes me feel empowered to make decisions around me myself and I like sure we can talk about LGBTQ specific topics but at the end of the day feeling safe as an LGBTQ person and feeling you know uh uh, secure in your identity comes from the fact that you're able to have these conversations with your authority figures, with your family members, with the people you care about, with your community. You need to mm-hmm. feel like you have support. So if you can have basic conversations around, hey, mom and dad, when can I say no to somebody? When can I say I'm uncomfortable? When can I say I'm unsafe? When can I say I'm unhappy? And what is, when can I say it's about this specifically? You know, um, mm-hmm. when we get better at doing that, we get better at actually getting our parents to listen and getting other people to listen. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, kind of, yeah, like I think um, younger LGBTQ individuals should definitely look to older LGBTQ individuals to have this conversation. Older LGBTQ individuals need to feel more comfortable having these conversations, right? Because we've already learned the thing. We need to start distributing the thing. And the kids need to feel safe to come to us for the thing. And then when they go back to their homes, they can actually start utilizing those tools and having those conversations early and, you know, with the people that are going to be in their lives. Yeah. 
Definitely. I agree. And just to add on to that, I think even us in our own lives, like if we have young people around us, like just not making assumptions about how somebody might identify or who they might be attracted to, just normalizing, even just maybe even using gender neutral language when referring to, you know, different things. I feel like that can help you who, you know, may identify as LGBTQ or feel comfortable, you know, having a discussion or feel safe if they do, you know, want to, you know, have a discussion. Um, does anyone else want anything to add? Going off of that, I'm going to say normalizing. Who cares? Why does it matter? <laughs> like <laughs> Normalizing. When is it your business? Right. Facts. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, just even when I, I'm having conversations with my own family members, I'm just like, just, but why does it matter? Why does it matter? It doesn't, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect me. The only way that it affects me is when you're not safe, when you're not happy, and when there's harm, you know? But other than that, like, how you, how you live your life, how anyone lives their life, like, who identifies as anything, whether it's religion, culture, sexual identity, it's like, as long as you are safe, as long as you are happy, and you're not doing harm to yourself or to others, like, I gotta rock with it, right. I gotta rock with it, because, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, un unfortunately, like, you can't, carry the weight of everybody else with you and you have to go to bed with yourself you know and as long as I can contribute to that happiness and that safety and that accessibility and that availability to to resources or whatever you need like I'm that's the part that I can play in it no matter what the identifier is you know but getting people especially I feel like in my experience um getting people to just drill that in their head, which is like, well, why does it matter? Why, how does it affect you? You know, um, where you worship, who you love, you know, all of those things. It's just, it's irrelevant. <laughs> right, or, you know, if it, or even if it, you think it does matter to you, does, is it because it affects you or it affects them? Do you care about what's happening with you or do you care about what's happening with them? Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about even just the educational system. I I'm thinking, like, when I was in grade school, wow, it was a while ago, almost a decade. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we talk about LGBTQIA youth, I think, Hosin, you, you alluded to this, where it's like certain conversations are not as convenient to have in certain communities, be not because people don't care, but first of all, some people think that other issues are more important than others, and we just talked about we can't separate ourselves. I'm both black, both women, both queer, right? But at the same time, like, our, like LGBTQIA youth, like their friends, the media, their schoolmates, their teachers have a huge role that, in plan, you know, that plays in their mental health. Like I think about my nieces here, and when we're watching TV or certain songs, and, like, I never thought I would be this adult, but I'm, like, turn this off. This is toxic masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Like, even with my nephews, where it's, like, this isn't allowing you to be your best self, to express yourself. There's not only one way to love. There's not only one person to love. And I think mm -hmm. I'm seeing an improvement compared to when I was in grade school where people, I hear my nieces say, oh, yeah, like, my friend is gay or, like, she's queer. Or, like, we literally just had a conversation last night about, the acronym and what it means and also making people know that while these labels exist and people within the LGBTQI community have claimed a lot of these terms, also recognize that everybody within that umbrella doesn't label themselves either, right? And so it's not something that you're always going to get right away. I, I would love for a lot of schools that have sex ed, because that's already a thing that we need to put into schools, but when sexual education does exist, to make sure there's a variety of what it means to conceive, a variety of what it means to have intercourse, et cetera, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the main foundation of public health. So when youth are trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? I'm attracted to the same sex. What does this mean? They have a space. If they're not comfortable going home and talking to their family about it, they can talk to their teacher and not feel shamed about what's happening to their bodies or how they're feeling inside. Right. I mean, that just kind of reminds me of this one time I was in elementary school and they were giving like what sex ed. And I was one of those kids that always had questions about everything. And all the teachers are all like, oh, no, there she goes again. <laughs> and I remember literally 
straight up raising my hand being like, what happens when you touch yourself at night? Is that the same thing as losing your virginity? And literally this teacher was like, don't do that. <laughs> and it was like, it was like, that solved nothing for me. That answered nothing for me. Yeah. And, it, and it, it just like instills this, this feeling of shame and this feeling of like, not even, what's even worse about shame is when you don't know why it's shameful, right? If you had an idea of why it could be shameful, you could start to build logic around it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have an idea of why it's shameful and it's just shuttled onto you as something to be accepted, then you internalize it. You start to think, oh, this is a bad commentary on my actual ethics and my character. And that's the other thing I think LGBTQ kids need to realize, or just anybody who is LGBTQ at any stage of their lives, don't internalize shit. Like, don't internalize the, the shit is, that is not meant for you to be held. Because the things that made you feel shameful, the things that made you feel wronged, the things that made you feel like you had to be silenced, that wasn't your responsibility. It was not your responsibility to feel shame. It was not your responsibility to be silent. It was the people that wanted you to feel shame, the people that felt shame for you, the people that wanted you to be silent because they didn't know how to answer you. That's not your responsibility to hold on to those things, you know? And I, I think kids, especially, they don't know how to, like, actually let go of those things because they attach it to their character. No one tells them otherwise, right? And if we're going to talk about, like, education, the educational system needs to not normally, not only like normalize these types of conversations, but because it's just good for somebody's psychological well-being. If someone, if you tell a kid enough times that they're bad, they're gonna believe it. If you tell a man that enough times that they're violent, they're gonna believe it, right? And they're gonna start developing behavior around it, actionable behavior, not just internal beliefs where they do weird shit on the internet in the dark web. They're gonna actually go out and start. I don't know, this is extreme, but start being like a, you know, like a Sandy Hooks. And, 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 and this kid, quote unquote, seemed totally normal. He never had a problem. He was quiet. He was a little quirky, whatever, whatever. But he internalized these things. He was told enough times that this was okay. And then he started building actionable beliefs on it. And no one thought it was going to be actionable because they just thought it was a belief. Mm. You know? And kids, kids need to be able to actually not internalize things and the, the environment around them around them needs to not reinforce that things that they develop or they begin to believe or they begin to develop opinions around isn't indicative of their character right when it's indicative of your character is when you know something is wrong and you consistently choose the wrong option that's indicative of your character but if you you didn't know or you just had ignorance that's one thing right but that doesn't mean you're a bad person and kids LGBT kids always feel like they're doing something bad. Yeah, I just dropped another mic. I'm sorry. I do that a lot. It's a virtual hug. Seriously, appreciate just like your honesty and vulnerability of like what it means in expressing in ways. I mean, we have marginalized identities as well, but we want to hold ourselves accountable to be like, you know, it's not just black lives that matter, black, all black lives matter, including black trans lives, black LGBTQIA lives. And I think just centering it around young people who are the future um, makes perfect sense. So thanks for, for sharing that wisdom. Yes, all black lives matter. Oh, <laughs> all right. I have to be because you got to make sure the black is there. Even like all lives matter. What's happening? No, no, all black lives. I didn't say that, right? Oh my I god! Yeah, you did. All black lives matter. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I was like, oh my god! I just had a lapse in memory. Did I say that? <laughs> They're listening to our call. Okay, let me stop. <laughs> okay, so before we round up. So traditionally, before we end the episode, we'd like to live, leave our listeners with a word. So the word I wanted to offer is community. And part of our acronym is about bridging love and access to community care and knowledge. And we believe that community is important and also community impacts our health. So my question to you all about community is, what do you love most about your community? And I know we're all a part of multiple communities. So whichever community you want to speak on, or if you want to speak on a certain intersection of a community, then, you know, feel free to do so. I'm going to call on Fatima to start first. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I need a little time. So you just want to know what community we appreciate? 
Yeah, what do you love most about your community or intersection of communities? <laughs> what a loaded question. This is so hard. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll do the intersecting and then see where, where my mind goes. So what I okay. will say, you know, with same, thanks for that question. The spaces that I've intentionally or non-intentionally put myself in, um, for the most part, have been a blessing, right, whether that's from school days to in the workplace to my friendships um, and to my family, right, because I still consider my family, whether intimate or extended, as part of community. And what I'd say is there's just a lot of love. And I'm not trying to sound cliche or anything like that, but love in a way that allows me to be who I want to be. And I think that's something that you learn, especially when you become an adult. Like, who is it that I want to share space with? And then people, you know, based on how you present yourself, would get to realize this is how you want to be treated, this is how you want to be loved. And I think love looks different for all of us, and the way we accept it looks different. But I think the ability to be myself allows me to also accept others. And just like throughout this whole conversation of even if we don't live in certain identities, right, we can still understand what it means to be human. And when I'd call you all, Ryan or Dara, or I'm talking to my mom or even my nieces or my coworkers, I can always know that there will be a piece of love and compassion in their hearts. Where it's like no judgment. I see Fatima for who Fatima is, and knowing that Fatima can change because Fatima's human. So mm -hmm. I think that I, that I see that across all of my relationships, and it's something I'm very, very grateful for. Don't take lightly at all. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I can go next. Um, I think for me, uh, I'll, you know, I'll talk about being a black woman. I just, from, you know, my mother to my aunt to, you know, the black woman mentors that I have in my life, like black women just get it done and are just so resilient. And I think what I love most about black women is just their resiliency and also being able to support each other and also lift others up as they're as they're also climbing and advancing. And I think that's what I love the most. And like the support that I've gotten from black women, like I try to, you know, give to other black women or when, when anyone calls you, like ask like advice about grad school. Like I'm like, oh yeah, like let me know when you're free. Here's my cell, like we can talk. So I think I just love the resiliency and also the support we have for, support and love we have for one another. Sorry, there's an ice cream machine around. <laughs> That's your community <laughs> showing you some love. That's my community. I think for me, when I've been thinking a lot about community in the geographic sense, um, since I've been at my parents' house for the past week, and I was um, telling a friend that, you know, I. I've always appreciated growing up in a place where, like, there was a true sense of community. Um, my hometown's pretty rural, so, like, everyone knows each other. Like, uh, I was just telling them that, like, the woman who works at, like, the one market that we have was, like, my elementary school librarian, you know? So it's like, oh, hey, Mrs. Morris. Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> we don't just have Mrs. Morris this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, yeah, just, like, growing up in an actual community where it's just, like, people know you for three different reasons, you know? Like, they know Ryan because of this, 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 and this, or I know Mrs. So-and-so from this, this, and this. And just growing up in that environment where people were looking out for one another and, you know, um, just really being there for each other and going off of that when I reflect on that in the in the community I grew up with geographically, um, I'm so thankful that I was able to be a child when I was a child, um, and especially as a, a young black child and a young indigenous child, like, seeing how rare that is once I went to college, once I went to grad school, once I moved to Boston, you know what I mean, um, and how much of a privilege that was, but also how much of a blessing that was that I can reflect on those times and be like, I was truly like a nine-year-old, like I was truly a 10-year-old and I didn't have the weight of so many other responsibilities that um, 
a lot of my friends, family, peers that, that they've had across all identities, you know, across all, you know, places they grew up, ethnicities, cultures, and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's so, that's so precious. And I was thinking about these things because that's what I want to be able to provide my children. I want, like, I was driving around my hometown and just like, kids still ride bikes to like the baseball park. You know what I mean? Not, there's nothing really else to ride to, but it's just like those innocent things. Like kids still ride their bikes to their friend's house, you know, um, and they still play outside and that just made me happy. Hearing you guys saying all these things just kind of makes me want to cry a little bit, but I'm not going to do that because I don't cry. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but I'm gonna be like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> now I try I try to be hard, but I'm actually a peach. I'm real soft and sensitive inside. Um you know, I the community that I really, really, really want to like shout out to, but at the same time continue to challenge is my Asian American community. I feel like being Asian American, you spent so much of your time not really knowing anything about your own history. You learn maybe like out of all American history in you know grade school, you learn like 20% is like, you know, about like the Civil War and things like that. And then like, there's like maybe a few pages on the, you know, how Asians were treated and things like that. And when you come to the, you know, this country, your only like purview of what you could grow on is what you see in your parents. But there was a lot that came before that. And I struggled a lot with trying to reconcile with my Asian American community because in a lot of ways, we need to do better. In a lot of ways, we're problematic as hell. And in a lot of ways, we're not showing up for you know, black and brown communities enough. We're, we're a part of the problem in a lot of ways. Um, and yet in a lot of other ways, I am the person that I am right now having these critical conversations because of them. Um, I grew up with you know, a bunch of orphan kids from immigrant families. I grew up with, you know, one of my best friends being uh, uh, um, disabled. I grew up with, you know, like one of my, um, one of my other best friends went to, into the Marines, got cancer, died before 24. Um, and these were all the stories of Asian Americans that just don't get any sort of visibility. And I feel like my shout out is I love my community because we do go through those things and we often go through them in silence. The other thing is I love my community because when we do see injustice happening, at least with my group of friends, um, my really, really good group of friends, um, they, they really do ask all the right questions and they really do keep critical and they really do keep trying to learn. And I mean, I feel like everybody's human. Everybody's going to be coming from a different point in the margin in life where we are problematic and we just need to learn. And we need to, we need to own up to that and say where we were wrong and, and start to learn. And I think I'm grateful that I have a group of friends who are just like, yo, Hoysam, tell me what's it about. And I'm going to be like, I can tell you what I know, but obviously you need to go talk to more black people. You need to go talk to, you know, more, Mex you know, like Latinx and Hispanic individuals. You need to you need to diversify at the end of the day, um, but I'm I'm grateful that my community is growing in a ways that I never thought they could, and I in and, and I'm giving more grace to them, and so in a way I'm giving more grace to myself, which is nice. Start to cry. Shut up. Don't 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 cry. Excuse <laughs> you, and it's okay. <laughs> Oh, you know I cry, right? Because I come to your office all the time crying. <laughs> yeah, the team is speechless. <laughs> it's beautiful, you know? This is a beautiful conversation. This is a whole beautiful podcast. When can I do this again? Oh. <laughs> <Lord>. Tomorrow. Because <laughs> that piece you just did from, like, giving people grace and therefore giving yourself grace, and then it was the Asian community, your party Asian Listen, that was poetry. It was. Yeah, I'm radiating heat right now. You can't tell. Cause yeah, that's why I got my fans. Right <laughs> <laughs> I'm all like, I don't know if this is anger, if this is passion. It might be the same thing. All of it. You passion, are anger, and heat. Right, right, all exactly. types of gems and seeds that will hopefully grow into strong, beautiful trees. Because, yeah. did I just rhyme? Or? You, no. did. Ooh, you did. Oh, okay. I always been passing me the mics. Now I'm <laughs> <I> caught it. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. I'll do the ghost writing and then you can do all the rest. <laughs> well, thank you for such a, an amazing conversation. And I I know that we could have this conversation for hours because we have we had have. this conversation yeah. for hours. <laughs> Um, and I just want to thank you again for like taking the time to to share those thoughts um, and vulnerabilities with us. Yeah, this was one of my um, the highlights of my week. I almost cried as well, and uh, you know, crying is is a hard thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a hard thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a vulnerable thing. Yeah. You gonna stop dropping mic, please? I got my first degree in English. I know how to write shit. I know how to say shit. Yeah, I'm fortunate to have this life with all of its nooks and crannies and its, you know, problems. Holy Okay, so we're going to figure out what episode you're coming back on. Um, no, again, just thank you so much. Um, I think we all definitely have a lot to digest on, and I can't wait to listen back to this podcast for, you know, all of the things that, you know, there's just so much to take in um, and so much to move forward with, too. And I appreciate your your perspectives and your thoughts, and even in some ways, at least for me, like ways to move forward, you know, simplifying those things. Um, and saying it in a way that is, you know, you always have a way of, this is why I hide her, you have such an amazing ability to, to like, meet people where they're at and to, to break it down in a way that is digestible. And it's just like, oh, like, I can, I resonate with this. Or, you know, like, now I know, like, the areas I can improve on or the areas that I need to learn more on, you know, and to stop trying to complicate things and just, it's, my like phrase for this episode is just like just being an advocate for humanity you Mm. know um and having that as my baseline for everything so thank you no thank you for always putting up with me when i show up to my appointments late (laughs) 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 thank you for listening to project block if you enjoyed listening to this episode don't forget to share, rate, and subscribe. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, take it easy and keep bridging the things that matter the most to you. Blackout! Blackout!